my father used to love buttermilk because uh-huh. he, he was from Poland. Where I lived, it was hard to get buttermilk. So I would tell, I would, I would ask Raphael, like when he would get off the bus, could you go into the store and get me some uh, container of buttermilk? And he would come home with like a half a dozen containers for my father because that's the kind of person he was. Generous. Yes, he was generous. This is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Doucette, and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories, too. So, are you ready? Here we go. Hi, guys. Before we begin this episode of Caregiver Storyteller, I'd like to say three things. First, Happy New Year. I wish all of you a safe and happy and healthy 2019. Second, thank you. You've made Caregiver Storyteller the number one caregiving podcast on iTunes, and that is pretty cool. Third, a new year means new opportunities. As the Director of Community Engagement here at Caring Kind, it's my job to help people interact with Caring Kind. One way is through this podcast. Another way is by coordinating a team of athletes who compete in five events throughout the year, the New York City Half Marathon, New York City Full Marathon, the Bike Tour, the Triathlon, and the Tackle ALZ Flag Football Game. Getting an entry for these races can be very difficult, but Karen Kind has a number of entries to give away. The next race is the New York City Half Marathon on March 17th. So if you're interested in running with us, please visit caringkindnyc.org slash athletes. That address again is caringkindnyc.org slash athletes. Thanks again for all your support, and I hope you can run with us. Now on to the show. My name is Annette Perpinan, and I reside in um, New York City, and I was a caregiver for my partner, my domestic partner, for 33 years. His name was uh, Raphael Perpinan. 33 years? That's a long time. Yeah, 33 years. And how did you meet? Okay, we uh, we worked at the, at the Jewish Museum together. He was downstairs in the uh, carpentry department, and I was in the gift shop. And uh, we kind of like ran into each other up and down the steps. They had nice steps there. And the museum was a beautiful building. And uh, we just kind of like, you know, looked at each other and we started conversations and we started talking. And that's how we met. What did you do on your first date? Maya Koch had um, a chef who opened up a restaurant on Madison Avenue. And we went there for dinner. And at that time, I told about 1982, the price for the dinner on Madison Avenue came to $25 for two people. <laughs> That's a bargain. Yep, that was a bargain. And you remember that night to this day? I don't remember what we ordered, yeah. but I remember that the bill came to $25. And uh, were you, was it love at first sight or first date, or did it take a while? Um, it took a while because... He had his issues, and I had my issues, so it, it took a while. But it, it ultimately oh, yeah, lasted. It, ultimate, it lasted for 33 years, yes. When you think back on the moment when your lives changed, uh, what was that moment like? Uh, what, how did his behavior change? What clued you into uh, the fact that there might be an issue with his health? 
Oh, God, there was a lot of different things. But one that I specifically remember is you'd come home and tell me that his wallet was gone. And someone picked his wallet on, on the bus. And then a few weeks later, it came in the mail. So since we never really had much money, so there was nothing really for anybody to take. Then there was a time when we were trying to cross the street, and he would go against the light. He would just start crossing, and I say, Raphael, what are you doing? You, you, you don't have the light. And then on his job, he had to uh, close the building at night. And there were times I would get calls from his superiors would tell me that he forgot to close the building. The building wasn't closed, so we'd have to go back, or I would have to come the next day after work, or if I wasn't working, I would have to just come there and make sure that he was closing the building. One day he tried to make some eggs and the pot started burning. He thought we'd always have a fire in the house. And then when he was doing his laundry, he he put bleach in, everything was just, you know, messed up. Then they started the incidents where we would go shopping together and he would sit in the restaurant and wait for me and I'd come back and he was gone. So I had to call the police, and the police came, and they told me he probably went home. And sure enough, when I came home, he was home. But my neighbor mentioned that they said, Where'd, where'd you go today? And he, he said he was in Manhattan, which he was, and he was in Brooklyn. But how he found his way home, I have no idea. That was like the first time. Mm. You know, then things got really, really bad after that. How old was he when this started happening? 75 but he I think he had it all along even when I met him I think he had something how old was he when you met well he was 22 years older 28. right he was 22 years older than me I was uh, 32 33 and he was like in his 50s and looking back you see signs oh yes I definitely see signs yes 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 what, what, give me an example of the earliest sign that you saw that you didn't realize was a sign until retrospectively. Um, well, when I met him, he was homeless. Okay? He didn't have a place to live. Well, he was living somewhere, but he had no heat, no hot water. And then, it was a t- and then after that, he didn't live there anymore. Then he was like sleeping in hotels or going into churches. So that was kind of like an early sign. But then as our relationship grew, I said, why do you have to do this? You know, he took an apartment. Why don't you just live with me? So that's how, that's how it started. What was, what was Raphael like as a person? Oh, he was a wonderful man. He, he was artistic. He was a, a, an artist. Uh, he definitely loved to work with wood. He, would, he could make tables or chairs or anything with wood. I mean, he was very handy, you know, or he could fix things or paint or sculpt. Uh, Once he made like a fireplace for a neighbor, like I came to the house and she told me, she showed me what he made and I was shocked. I don't even know how he did it, like with the wires and the fires. I don't know, something was going. I I, I was like stunned. Was that part of the appeal for you? Is that Well, he was an artist. Yeah, Yeah. that was part of the appeal. Yeah. And he was a, he loved to play chess. He was a chess player, which I didn't play. And uh, he would play with other people or against himself. You know, he would set up a chessboard, and he had this whole thing going. 
and he was a kind person. He was he was very good to my father, and to me. He was he was just a good person, and he had a son. You know, he loved his son, son from a previous relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I could say that uh, he was a very he was just a kind, decent you know human being. Do you just have that a he just that he got into situations, and then I understand now why. I think that was part of the disease. So looking back, you see frustrating moments explained by... I think so. Mental I health. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. When you think of a uh, favorite memory of, of Ralph, what is what comes to mind? A moment that's just okay. joyful to you. My father used to love buttermilk because uh-huh. he, he was from Poland, born in Poland. Where I lived, it was hard to get buttermilk. So I would tell, I would, I would ask Raphael, like when he would get off the bus, could you go into the store and get me some uh, container of buttermilk? And he would come home with like a half a dozen containers for my father because that's the kind of person he was. Generous. Yes, he was generous. So that's one of uh, the memories I'll never forget. How funny, what a simple thing, and yet it stands out. Right. After 33 years, you think right. of this one buttermilk story. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's the small kindnesses that stand out, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it's just a lot of stories. Do you have another one? Of my favorite story of? with Ralph? Yeah. Uh, you're getting emotional. Yeah, I know. He always, he would always come home with candy, flowers. You know, he just, even when I met him at the museum, you know, he would always bring me candy, like chocolate bars from around the corner on Madison Avenue. And uh, every time we went places, he would always say, buy it, buy it, buy it, whatever it was, even though we couldn't afford it. He sounds like a very live, yeah. live in the moment kind of guy. Yeah, he was a live in the moment. Are you like that or are you more of a conservative type person? I'm both. I'm a live in the moment and I could be conservative. I go back and forth. Yeah. So when, when Ralph started to show signs that were more significant than just little things, it, what event drove you to see a doctor? Probably after like he would leave me, like if I would be with him and then like I turned around, he was gone, you know, I got lost or something. I, that and losing his keys. Then he started, you know, his own personal keys he was losing. So we went to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And they diagnosed it as uh, dementia. I went to a neurologist. And then from there, I went downhill. But I wasn't going to give up. I still traveled with him. Our last trip was in Europe because I wanted to go to Poland to see where my father came from, my parents. So we went. But he was sick at the time. And I couldn't leave him alone. I had to, uh, to watch him. But the bottom line was that I had to shower him, do everything myself. I had to make sure he had the food. I had to change his diapers. And I, and, and I just went on. I, I didn't like, give up and say, we're not going to do anything anymore. How did well, he interpret his own illness? How did he handle that? Ralph? I don't yeah. think he knew what was going on. You think he was that far along in his dementia? No, that because he... Ralph was the kind of guy that just like, you know, like if it is, it is. If it isn't, it isn't. He said, what will be, will be. Exactly. I'm going to live for the day. Right. Right. We acknowledge that that's what he was kind of like. Right. right? That's what it was. And you, how did you handle it? 
uh, I didn't know that it was going to be such a journey that I was going to have to go through with him. Because uh, step one was, it was just a few medicines, and then along the road, after stage one, and then you had to go to the last stage. It was just horrible, horrible to see someone, how they deteriorated. And uh, if you want me to talk about the stages, I could talk about the stages. Like, I think first we started with, we had the Exelon patch, and then after that, somehow he got on Haldol. Because, you know, his personality started to change. And then he couldn't sleep. So he got melatonin. And then, I don't know, I think we took the Donzapel. Oh, Aricep. Aricep, right, the 10 milligrams. That started, that was like the, after we got off the Exelon patch, we he got into the Aricep. So you were really managing and medications, it sounds Lasex like. Lasex. Yeah. Well, I had to manage it because he wouldn't have taken it. He wouldn't even know how to do it. So I had to do it. And then we had to go to the doctor. So we kindly always went to the doctor, went to the, to the uh, primary doctor who actually took care of him. And then he went to the neurologist. And then we had the uh, gastroenterologist. And, and then you had the, um, I don't know, all kinds of doctors. I mean, it was yeah. like so many things were going on. It was like a full-time job. Yeah. Did you uh, reach out for any support? Did you get support from anyone? I had a support anyone? group. But how, what, how were they? Did that did that help you? Well, those women gave up. They just said, "Oh, my husband's this, my husband's that, my husband's that." I did, and I kept on. We kept on traveling. We kept on going to the museums. I would take him to the museums. He loved the art, and he would identify the artwork. At the beginning of the first stage, I took him to concerts, and he loved the music. We went to restaurants. We went to eat. And that was like the first or second year. After that, it went downhill. I would take him out, and he be, he would become violent. He would try to run out of the place. He would try to he would take his clothes off. You know, he'd be sitting somewhere, and he'd be in the wheelchair, and he'd stand up, and all of a sudden he he he'd pull his pants down. He, he would just try to just take off all his clothes, or he'd be screaming, and I'd have to leave. So I had to give him more Haldol. And then there was the times he had pneumonia. So he was in the hospital a couple of times with that. But as soon as you come in there with, with uh, Alzheimer's, they don't, give, they don't care. They just don't. The doctors care. But the rest of the people, like the nurses, they're really too busy with other uh, patients. So one night I, come, I came back to the hospital, and I find that they had tied him up. And the blood stain on it. And I said, what's this? And they said, oh, he, he was disruptive at night, you know, screaming this, that. We had to tie him down. So that got me angry. So then I wrote a letter to complain, and uh, they never even answered me. And then there was another time I took him to another hospital where the doctors, again, insisted that he was dying. And I said, he's not dying. He was on hospice for five years because I took care of him by myself. No AIDS, nothing. Why not? Why didn't you? Because when I had an aide, the first aide that I had, this guy, he came in and he would fight with him. And the guy and the aide hit him. I saw it myself. So I said, goodbye. You know, that was the end of that. I saw the people that they were sending over. These people, you know, they're not there to help. So I said, I better do this myself. And I did. So hospice couldn't believe I had him on hospice for five years. So he was in the hospital. As soon as they see hospice, he's dying. I said, he's not dying. 
I told the doctor he's not dying. What and did he didn't die, and he came home, and he lived another uh, few years after that. Because I knew he was eating, he was still strong, he was still walking. It's just that his memory was off. And he always recognized me until the last day, even the last day of his life, he, he knew who I was. Really? Yes. At the end of his life, he was on a, on a feeding tube. And that's when it got really very bad because I had to learn how to use the machine because the doctor said to me like this, he said, our primary doctor says that you have to do everything you can to save a person, you know, because he stopped eating. And I said, yes, I want to do everything I can, you know, to save him. And I'll take on this challenge. And I knew it was horrible for him. And I had to put, not only I had to do the feeding tube, I had to put all his medicines through the feeding tube. Liquid medicines, I had to measure everything. I had to learn this machine that was standing there, which I didn't, I still don't understand how I, I did that. And then he started losing weight. He was only on the feeding tube for about three weeks. And, and that was it. He, one day I, 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 I was cleaning him or washing, but the end, the last month, the last three months I had an aid. Okay. Cause I couldn't do it. You know, cause I couldn't lift him anymore. I couldn't. Right. So I had an aide and she helped me a lot and she came and then like the last and then one she wasn't there one night and then he was in the hospital bed and his body was cold. I said, uh oh, this is it. So I called the ambulance and they came and they took him to the hospital and the next day he died. And that was another thing. I had to be at the hospital all the time to watch what they were doing there. You just, just can't leave them alone. They're not, they're not, they don't care. This is, a person can't do anything for them. And then he had bed sores. He had so many bed sores from the hospital. It was just horrible. Mm. And I knew that the only way he was going to get the good, the care was through me. Mm. And he got it. Now, as far as his memory went, like he used to be a chess player. And he, at the end, so two years before he died, he, I put a chess board in front of him. He just looked at it. Didn't know what to do with it. He knew me, and he also had seizures. It's another thing that came with this disease. So we had to have to take Keppra. We had to take this expensive drug, Keppra. And one night I had a friend over, and we were eating dinner, and he was standing while I was cooking, and the next minute I turned around, he's on the floor. I thought, you know, that he had a heart attack. I had to call an ambulance. The ambulance came, and he, it turned out he had a seizure. I tell you, my primary doctor did a lot for us. So you got good care from your from, primary from my primary doctor, yeah. yes. Yeah. And um, and I, and then he had to then all of a sudden you know we had to get new medicines. You had to get like seizure medicines. I mean it was just a horrible. I I just don't. I I mean what I saw him go through, and then there was times where he would get violent, where he would like hit me. You know, like when I was trying to like you know take him to the bathroom or something, mm -hmm. he was like hit me in the head, but that didn't bother me because I knew he was sick. But I think when, one of the things that I noticed, like, he always wanted to eat. So at the beginning, I'd be sleeping and the refrigerator door would be opening and closing, like, all night. All night long, it'd open and close the refrigerator, open and close. It was just that part, you know. The, the rest, I, the sleep patterns were at night and uh, active and trying to leave the house, taking a, a, a towel and, and trying to break out the door. I had to put inside locks in 
Then there was one time I had visited somebody in a nursing home. And I'm going back while he was still walking and still eating, you know, the beginning stages. I was visiting somebody in a nursing home with him. And he said, I'll wait for you downstairs. And I come downstairs, he's not there. I ran to the police station and I had to read a report. And they couldn't, you know, they looked, we looked around the neighborhood. It was dark. And I went home and I said, listen, what can I do? You know, I mean, like, there's nothing I could do. I, I he, he had ID. So I, I, so the next day I called like his friend, he had a good friend and I told him what happened. So he said he was going to come over with the car, you know, and we're going to go look. But then right after that, I got a call from the police. They found him on the Belt Parkway, five exits away from where he left. Now, how he got on the Belt Parkway, walked all the way those miles without nothing happening. A cop on a motorcycle, the cops were great, too. The police, every time I had a problem that he was lost, they, they went with me, they looked with me. They were, like, really great, too. Did he have a bracelet? Yeah, he had a bracelet, but he would rip it off. Mm. Like one day I would look at him and I said, where's your bracelet? So I couldn't even keep the bracelet on him. Mm. You know, things like that. I mean, I just couldn't leave him alone after that. He was, I don't know, there were so many episodes. The diaper changes, The then he had hallucinations. As primary caregiver, you went through a lot. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. It's literally heavy lifting. How did you do it all by yourself? I did it. You just made yourself do it. Well, first of all, once in a while, like I had a friend who, because I, I didn't want the AIDS, because I knew that the AIDS were gonna, it was just not gonna work out. So I had a, a good friend, uh, Perry, and I said to him, please come over in the morning and just help me take him, just give him a shower. And Perry would come over in the morning and uh, we'd put him in the shower, take, you know, and we'd wash him and then we'd put him into the bed or the chair or whatever. Not the bed, he was on the chair. I'd have to do that every day. That that was he helped me for a while with that. So thank goodness you for know, Perry. That Perry. Yeah, yeah, we would wash him. I gave him clean clothes, and then we always went out to eat. And Perry would drive us. He would help us. You know, we go to the restaurant. Ralph had a great appetite. He loved to eat. <laughs> I mean, he really had a, up until the end, like three months before. Like all of a sudden, he stopped eating. I mean, like he was choking. And. Um, what about his child from the previous marriage? How was the child involved? Or okay. was, were um, they not involved? The child would come to see us, and he really couldn't handle seeing his father this way. Mm-hmm. And he would always say to me like this, Annette, if it wasn't for you, I would put my father, it was a son, okay, son. I would put my father in a nursing home. That was, that was his answer. Like, How did that make you feel? Well, you're not going to put your father in a nursing home because I'm going to take care of him. So I'm not going to let him go because I know he would he would die because I know the care that you get in a nursing home. So he kind of let me make all the decisions, which I'm gr- grateful for. And then at the end, we had to make the decisions together. Did you have a contractual un, like a, agreement? Was there a power of attorney? Did you I have, have power, we had attorney? A power of attorney? You we did, had- not the son. Well, we had power of attorney for uh, financial stuff, mm-hmm. but I we never did anything for medical. Yeah. But he let me. He said that you know my father. You've been with him like a very very long time. Right. So we just let it uh, go the way it was. So he really sounds like it sounds like he really deferred to your judgment. Right. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't happy about the feeding tube. He felt that father, you know, should just go. And I said, no, that's not the way. 
you know, you can't just let a person go. And the doctor had to call him and talk to him and explain to him that, you know, you got to give it a chance. And we did give it a chance. And at the end, he had an infection. And mm. I don't even know how he got the infection. Do um, you have a relationship with his son now? No, I don't. He stopped calling. And uh, that's it. So what can I say? How long ago did Ralph die? Three years ago. Three years ago. Does it still feel like a fresh wound? Do you feel like you have grieved and moved I, on? How? Where are you right now okay. emotionally after this incredible I still, caregiving? I still cry. Like, I mm-hmm. look at his pictures, and I still cry. I still think he's coming home. I guess he's at work, and uh, any minute he'll he'll open the door. I see. I still have his merchandise his, his clothes, his tools, everything is still in the basement. Have I moved on? I've moved on a little bit, but not not a lot. It's three years. It's it's just so fast. It took me like one year just to, to calm down from all those years of, of being a, a caregiver. You know, I needed like that one year just to just not to do anything, and then uh, and then I kind of like slowly moved on. What do you feel like you need now in your life? I'd like to have a part-time job. <laughs> I wish I can get a part-time job. I'm looking for a part-time job, uh, something that I want to enjoy. Even my doctor says to me, at this point in my life, I should do something that I like. I take the drama. I take an acting class because wonderful because the hospice people when they came to me, they said to me, "What are you going to do when Ralph goes?" This was like right away, you know. I said, "He's not going," you know. This was like right away. They, they couldn't understand. He was on hospice for five years. So um, I said, I'm going to take uh, acting classes. And that's what I do. You love have, them? Yeah, I do. I have a very good time with it. And um, that's about it. Other than that, I could use a part-time job. And then, because I wasn't married to Ralph, I couldn't get his Social Security. So that was very disappointing because they have all these laws for every other people, mm-hmm. other groups, and... And a common law arrangement didn't Well, it was apply. like this. There was 10 states in the United States, and you would think New York is a very liberal state, right? Right, But it right. doesn't have common law. It ended in 1937. Oh. So I had to write letters all over the place. I wrote to, like, every senator, every governor in New York. Uh, all the, I wrote to everybody, every... You name it, all the politicians I wrote to. And first of all, they all said they never heard of such a thing like this. No one ever in their life came with this kind of a story. And then they said, you know, they can't do anything about it. There's no law. The legislation, you know, the New York State Assembly would have to do a thing. And, of course, no one. And that's how it ended. So that was very disappointing. Yeah. Because, you know, we were, we had a, a, an official domestic partnership document from the city of New York. And I couldn't get any of the Social Security. Well, I'm, we're about we're about uh, we're about to wrap up. Okay. So um, let me ask you this: right. After so much experience caregiving, right? If you were to meet another caregiver who is currently caring for someone, what mm-hmm. would your advice be to them? I would say, like, if you really love the person, then do it. But you see, people they hire these people all over the joint, and they go to work and they. And they just come home, and, and their parent could be abused. And it's horrible. It's really sad. So I had to take it on. I took on this journey by myself. I didn't expect it. 
but you it seems to mm. me your commitment and loyalty is something right. to be proud of do you well, feel that do you yeah, feel a sense I do, of pride but i wish his son would have felt that way mm. i i know ralph appreciated it the, the, the day be, three days before he died his best friend came over and he was already on the feeding tube and i brought him to the uh, table and he nodded his head like he recognized his friend he couldn't talk anymore for me he definitely knew and that's thanks in large part to your good caregiving. I mean, I would say he had excellent caregiving. And that's a wonderful testament mm -hmm. to you and a great note to end on. Annette Perpinen, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Karen Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.